This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Become a patron today at patreon.com forward slash into the portal. For centuries, peoples of the ancient southern Mediterranean would hear accounts of a mighty king who kept hidden a creature so foul that it was confined to a place where it could never escape. Nor would any human sent into its lair once again emerge alive. Referenced in Hellenistic mythology and by Greek historians such as Pliny the Elder and the writings of Homer, the savage and fearsome figure of the Minotaur, half-man, half-beast, loomed large in the imaginations of the ancient world, a creature believed to reside in a vast labyrinth somewhere on the island of Crete. But was the legendary labyrinth a real, physical place, housing some kind of monster, or a mere fable. Join us on Into the Portal as we delve into the world of pre-classical Greek civilization in search of the Minotaur's Labyrinth. Welcome back into the portal. I'm Amber Ray. And I'm Andrew McKay. And we're back with a really, really cool historical mystery for you guys today. Yeah. I'm pumped. Very excited. But before we get into it, I just wanted to say this episode is sponsored by Coffee Gator. Get 15% off with our exclusive promo code QUARK, Q-U-A-R-K. You use that at the checkout. Drink better coffee with Coffee Gator. And, of course, listen up because we have week two's coffee... Coffee Gator trivia question. That's going to be coming up after the promo break in this episode, so stay tuned for that. Mm-hmm. Really excited. And as well, just a few shout-outs to make. We've got one for Jake Billinghurst. What's up? What, what? You have an awesome last name, man, and we just want to thank you. You yeah. gave us a little shout-out on Facebook and uh, stellar review slash recommendation, so we missed you last week. I was going to mention it, and then I was so out of it when we were recording, I totally forgot. <laughs> but anyways, thank you so much. And then as well, uh, Paula. Paula O'Janin yes. from Facebook there, like, thank you. You've been reaching out and you've been active on the forum and we love it. So thanks for joining us on this cool, crazy adventure. Definitely. And one other shout out too, it is actually my sister's birthday today. Yeah. The day that we're recording. So when we release tomorrow, it'll be the day after, but happy birthday, Virginia. Yes. Happy birthday, Virginia. Yeah. And we don't have any new reviews on the American iTunes, but we popped on there and holy moly, you guys have been doing an amazing job. We're up to 82 reviews. So mm-hmm. thank you guys all so, so much for getting on there and clicking those five stars, four stars. Um, if you haven't already, we really appreciate it. Um, the four stars. Hey, just I'm happy the with stars. the four stars. I'm happy with the four stars too. I mean, fours and fives are solid. I mean, you know, you know yeah. always room for Actually, improvement. four out of five was my average uh, grade <laughs> I think when I was too. in school, grade point average is what they call yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
But we actually do do have a few uh, written ones, new ones. They're Sweet. from the UK iTunes. So a couple of new five-star reviews. And I think we're up to seven total up on the UK iTunes, which is pretty sweet. Climbing. So the first one's from uh, Celtic Blue 13 He says they've listened to listen to everything. Listen to all of them from the beginning. Enjoyed them all. And this uh, this came in on December 12th. So really <laughs> sorry uh, that we missed this. Sometimes iTunes is slow. A but uh, we just wanted to make sure we get to you. So thank you so much for that review. And then we had another one from Turnzik. Which say, who says they have been listening for a few months now, and it's become one of their favorite shows. So that's awesome. They say it's unbelievably inspiring. Thank no, you so- I said that's unbelievably oh. inspiring. <laughs> I'm saying, oh. them saying that that is one of their favorite shows is like, that to me is so inspiring. We've had, I can't even imagine. whenever we hear that, that totally makes our day. Like, it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, sets the tone for the entire day. That's for sure. Yeah. So thank you guys. Appreciate it. We really appreciate it. One more thing before we get into this, um, that I didn't write down in the show notes, but it's our anniversary weekend oh, yeah. for the show. It's That's our first right. anniversary. So ITP has been around Sweet. for a solid year. It's kind of crazy to think, right? It's like, flown. This year went by really fast. Really flown. So it's been so much fun. I, it's been a blur, but it's been a great blur. So thank you to everyone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you, everybody. Yeah, <laughs> totally. 100%. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I actually came up with an order of events for this one today because <laughs> it's got a lot going on. Yeah. So I'm just going to quickly go through everything. So tonight we are actually talking about, like we said, pre-Greek mythology. So... We're going back to the days of the Minoans. Right. And uh, we're going to start off with some myth- mythology today. So some Hellenic mythology, uh, including the sort of genesis of King Minos and the Minotaur itself. So right. that crazy, crazy beast that was locked away in the labyrinth for, mm. for all of King Minos's enemies. Anyways, we're going to get into that and all the fun nuances and details involving that. And then after, we're going to do some fact-checking. Yeah. So it's more like the history side of things. So we'll get into... Um, the cult of the bulls. Um, we'll get into some historical figures. Are they real? Are they imagined? All this kind of stuff. And then get into this, obviously some Minoan culture, the background, and then all the excavations that have taken place at Knossos. It's pretty insane. And at other sites around Crete too. So yeah. there's a lot to go through and I'm it's really, really, really excited. Busy episode. Yeah, I know. I'm excited too. Mm-hmm. So, all right, well, let's get right into it. So like Amber said, we're, we're jumping back to pre-Greek history. I kind of said Greek and that was a misnomer. Pre-Greek history and the mythology in the time of the Minoans. And we We've referenced them a few times in previous episodes. They are the earliest known civilization to precede the Mycenaean Greeks, the mainland Mycenaean totally. Greeks. What was the reference? I guess we referenced them when we were talking about the Sea Peoples. I think that was it. And they were like one of the first, maybe one of the first to fall as a result of these incursions of the That's Sea right. Peoples. That's what it but was. But like we kind of uncovered in that episode, it was more a multi-pronged sort of things going on with that. But anyways. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, we obviously would have touched on the fact that like they're super fascinating culture and they're defined mostly in part by the mysteries that surround the discovery of, of them. Their beautiful, their beautiful artwork, their intricate artifacts and the multiple sites around the island of Crete that speak to this rich flourishing culture in its prime way before the Mycenaean Greeks mm-hmm. yet suddenly lost was, was totally lost in very mysterious fashion mm-hmm. in and around 1470 BC. Yeah. And a lot of that that mystery obviously is the fact that they didn't keep a lot of records they did keep like you know like tax records and, and economic records they didn't keep a lot of their own history though which adds to the exactly that the mystery of it all right this was funny too i just the word alibaba being thrown thrown in here because obviously they were known for their artwork and their beautiful frescoes um sculptures pots and alibaba jars mm-hmm. which is which is so funny right just storage but, part yeah jars but they're very pots. ornate and unique for the mediterranean they're really well Totally. So that's kind of the main thing about the Minoan culture is that they 
were exactly that, very artistic, very aesthetically inclined. So they took a lot of inspiration from the natural world and then applied it to their everyday objects, which made them beautiful artifacts. And when they were uncovered, like you get things like pottery that's literally like eggshell thin and so delicately just painted on and it's just it's gorgeous it's amazing right? the sculpture too same thing it's just the types of things people could build without computers and machines and precision tools mm-hmm. that we have today it's it insane. seriously was like a whole nother level especially in the ancient world very so. much so mm-hmm. and so i mean definitely the minoans are a central focus here because we're going back pre-greek but tonight we are focusing on the myth of the minotaur some pronounce it minotaur because of its link to king minos we're going minotaur okay and essentially yeah we're talking about this monster and the legendary status of its lost labyrinth the the home of this beast some have claimed it uh, that it's on the underneath the palace of Knossos itself or is the palace or itself is the palace itself while others believe it is still to be discovered somewhere lost beneath the surface because mm-hmm. i believe in a lot of the mythology in the scriptures it kind of says that the labyrinth was a place located adjacent to the palace okay. so it wasn't right. actually a part of it but again well, that makes sense why would you keep a monster right there you'd think it would be a little <laughs> little off the beaten path maybe exactly next door or something right exactly um i don't know why i just <laughs> taste the beast <laughs> <laughs> just see paul Her rudd's face models. yeah <laughs> Jin, Jin, and by the way, this stuff's poison. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so before we get into the legends and the mythology, we did want to note a few things that are kind of important here. Mm -hmm. So again, like I already reiterated, um, we are going to be discussing the mythology. So there's going to be a lot of fantastic elements that we're just going to be talking about as if it's the way it was. And then we'll go into the whole uh, history and archaeological findings that support various hypotheses regarding the factuality of the legends themselves. Right. And these legends are obviously passed down for hundreds of years orally before they were ever recorded by classical historians such as Homer and uh, Pliny the Elder. So a lot of these interpretations of the events that unfolded are inevitably colored by um, Greek culture and ideas of the time. So their interpretations of the events that happened obviously like almost like a thousand years previous would be exactly that like it would be exaggerated it would be fantastical it would be associated with the gods over on uh right, of course. on uh, what's it called again the olympus olympus, olympus right yeah. and... exactly so of course so many interpretations of this material exist and we are going to give voice to a few of these ideas we are not experts by any means but we're just kind of giving voice to it yeah absolutely so. okay so let's get into the legend of the minotaur let's do it all right So in this ancient Greek or Hellenic Hellenic, uh, legend, uh, it was passed down, like we said, for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And in this particular legend, we get King Minos's origins as well as that of the mythic Minotaur monster. Nice. Okay. So this is all direct quote. (laughs) All right. So Zeus, in the form of a bull, brought Europe from the Phoenician seashore to Gortys in the in Crete, where he made love with her under a plane tree, or on the plane tree, after assuming the form of another sacred animal, the eagle, <laughs> in the okay. form of a bull. So first he's a bull, then he's an eagle. Shapeshifter. Exactly. Um, since then, the plane tree was blessed never to lose its leaves, becoming an evergreen. From their union, three sons were born triplets. Next, Zeus arranged the marriage of Europe to the Cretan king, Asterion, very, very typical of Zeus. He kind of mm-hmm. has his way with a woman and then <laughs> tosses her aside. <laughs> you see that all the time. But anyways, and then he appointed um, 
Exactly that. He appointed the Cretan king, Asterion, um, Europe to Asterion, and then all of their sons, so the triplets, would be his successors. So as promised, the three sons of Europe and Zeus named Minos, Radamanthes, and Sarpedon succeeded King Asterion to the throne of Crete. Initially, they seemed satisfied to co-govern, but Minos, who wanted the reign to be his exclusively, ended up banishing his brothers. So Radamanthes was sent to Vyotia, or Cyclades as it's also called, and Sarpedion to the Asia Minor. Okay. Minos then became monarch, and he believed the gods would give him everything and anything he wished. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Once, wanting to sacrifice a bull in the honor of his king Poseidon, Minos asked Poseidon to send the best bull he could find from the sea. The bull was so beautiful that Minos didn't sacrifice him, but instead kept him with his flock or in the palace gardens. To revenge Minos for not keeping his promise, Poseidon made the bull so ferocious and dangerous that his eventual capture in Crete became one of the 12 feats of Hercules. Mm. It's the seventh task of the Cretan bull. Crazy. <laughs> All right. So when Pasiphae, his immortal wife, so Minos's immortal wife, saw the bull, she fell in love and coupled with him. There is some additional info here. So Poseidon was actually said to have uh, bewitched her or enchanted her right. to fall in love with the bull. So she was just under a spell because that just sounds really, really weird. Get some bestiality elements here. Yeah, there's a lot of that <laughs> in the ancient world and stories and myths and things. But I mean, yeah, definitely seems like something you do under the spell of the gods. So it gets even freakier here. <laughs> okay, so it says here, she was able to couple with him with the help of Daedalus who constructed a wooden likeness of a cow in which Pasiphae hid. Hmm. From this union, the monster Minotaur was born, a humanoid being with a bull's head, which Minos promptly jailed in the labyrinth, an enormous construction in Knossos. So, okay, quick pause here. Yep. Diodalus, he is the architect of the labyrinth, and he's also the architect of um, the wooden cow. <laughs> so, kind of messed up. Yeah. But he was actually in exile from his home country, and I'm not sure exactly where that was. It was somewhere in the Mediterranean. Okay. And he essentially arrived in Crete and became the architect of Minos. So, he constructed a lot of things, including this elaborate labyrinth. Pretty prestigious uh, job title. Pretty cool, sure. hey? Interesting. I know. He's like basically, yeah, he's got a lot going on. But according to the myth, Minos was imprisoning his enemies in the labyrinth so that the Minotaur could eat them, or Minotaur. The labyrinth was such a complicated construction that no one could ever find their way out alive. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Definitely not a place you wanted to end up walking into essentially the complete blackness of, of, of this labyrinth where so many twists and turns that almost no way to get back out again that to me is almost like beyond just being claustrophobic in a small dark space like that would be like one of my worst nightmares that's worse hey like having an endless infinity of space but you just don't know where you're at yeah it actually kind of reminds me of dark city because we a little bit like a maze yeah in a a way for sure so i have a few questions here i just want to pause for discussion before we get into too much more of the mythology So what do you think of King Minos and his intentions thus far? (laughs) I mean, obviously, like in this story, or at least this version, he's very spiteful of this uh, coupling, obviously, or or at least he's, I don't even know. I mean, I kind of set him on edge a little bit, right? It became his uh, little uh, 
place to send enemies and things like that. Even before that, though, with his the idea that he felt it was his right to ask Poseidon to find the finest bull in all of the seas to present to King Minos so that he could sacrifice it for Poseidon only to go back on his word. Right. Right? And so you get um, him pissing off, yeah, the the god of the sea. (laughs) Not a good idea. And just keeping the prize. Like, do you not think that something bad isn't going to happen? Yeah. You know? It's kind of, it's, it's sort of funny though, right? Because we're dealing with sacrifice of a creature that they revere. It's kind of an interesting thing because the story is like he was given a bull that was so magnificent that he just, he couldn't, he couldn't sacrifice it. Is that his own vanity though? Right? Yeah. Because he wanted to just have the best bulls in his own personal palace garden? I think that's what the story is trying to say, that he's a very, yeah, he's a, he's, he's very vain and, and uh, possibly shallow and kind of short-tempered. Well, you definitely get the shallowness too with the fact that he doesn't want to share the throne. Yeah. He casts away his two brothers. It's kind of interesting that he just uh, like outcasts them. He didn't kill them. Yeah. (laughs) Which does speak to maybe some sort of, uh, uh, what's it called? Mercy, I guess. Yeah. I mean, this, Um, this whole relationship with Minos and Poseidon and stuff definitely takes the whole sort of divine right of kings to another level in the sense that like you're directly interacting just like we would see later on in the, you know, with British monarchs and stuff, like they're directly connected to God or whatever. Right. Yeah. But this is kind of different. Like you're making transactions with the gods and then pissing them off because you don't follow through. And well, that's just it. And the fact that in this particular origins myth, like King Minos himself has a direct descendant or descendancy from Zeus. So therefore he is a God himself. Right. And or a demigod or demigod, whatever. Like Hercules. But Europe was a god too, so he's full god, I would imagine. Hmm. Um but anyways, besides the point, like yeah, he refers to Poseidon as his uncle. So like there's very close, like it's all all of this again, like I said at the very beginning, is colored by the Greek culture and Greek uh, fixation on their version of the gods, right? And how these ancient rulers from times past that have constructed these amazing, magnificent palaces that they now see that are empty, right? Because by this point, the Minoans are gone. And so just like trying to come up with an equally awesome story to kind of, you know, like prop up the the prestige and the the image of these people, right? Whether or not King Minos himself actually existed. Right. Anyways, I had a few other questions. Like, obviously, like, he kind of just seems like a typical Greek brat kind of a thing. Um, What what do you think of Diodalus there? (laughs) The architect making the, uh, (laughs) making that cow for Pasiphae. Uh, That immediately just reminded me, I don't know why, of the Gollum episode and the guy who builds the wooden Gollum. Totally. And it's like, that's a bad use of materials, but I don't. (laughs) (laughs) And there's like pictures of it where she's like hiding and it just looks like a woman inside the womb of a cow. And it's really confusing. Huh. Yeah. What's okay? I, I this is a random question too, though. I don't want to get too hung up on it, but all the I mean, we're in the Mediterranean. Why is the bull the the animal of choice? You know what I mean? Like you'd think it would maybe some sort of a a sea creature, possibly, oh, that's interesting. or you know, like a shark or a whale anything? or something. I don't know. Mm, hmm. But the sea is just like. I would imagine in those days, the sea was a much more opaque place, right? Like we don't have the visuals that we have today and like the, the research capabilities go down into the depths and maybe something like the Kraken could have been like a monstrous type of thing, but I feel like maybe land animals were more accessible. I guess. But if you, you look, other ancient cultures revered certain fish or things or whatever, right? What other thing would be more intimidating than a freaking crazy, like the type of bull that was in this, uh, at this, like in Crete culture at the time was one of the biggest most aggressive bulls there is. Right. That's the part that makes sense in this myth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. We still get that sort of veneration in uh, cowboy culture today, right? With uh, rodeos and bull riding and all that. So 
Definitely. I, I can definitely see why the bull would have been the centerpiece. And there's a cult of the bull, right, with Minoan culture and stuff. And you see it all over the place in frescoes and sculpture and everything. So, right. I, yeah, that is a good question, though. Like, this this fascination with the bull. Um, and Zeus himself is actually equivocated with that of the bull. Like, it's, mm-hmm. it is the supreme animal. Yeah. It's, like, almost like the ultimate creature of the cosmos was kind of how it was figured in in the minds of uh, Greeks and then it, it probably almost in is adjacent to, to Hindu philosophy in a way, in some sort of ways, oh, although yeah. I don't think they would be sacrificing the cows by by any means. That's interesting, but actually. That just reminded That's me a of parallel, that. for but sure. Anyway, but I mean, when we come to the actual death of the Minotaur, there's, there's some confusion. Yeah. For sure. There's the character of Theseus, who mm-hmm. we'll get into, and then of course Hercules, who everyone knows. And Hercules has been attached to this story, but in kind of a misleading way. There's a famous tapestry that exists that's simply called the Her- called Hercules Battling the Minotaur. Mm-hmm. And it essentially depicts Hercules triumphing over this half-man, half-bull monster. Mm-hmm. And in the background, we can see the ships Hercules used to sail to the island of Crete to, to accomplish this task. But, like I said, it's, mis- it's misleading and it's actually false. These events never really happened. Hercules no. just kind of got tacked on to this story because of his fame. Well, not even so much that, but because he does have, he comes in with the, the, the 12 tasks, right? So the seventh task was right. capturing the Cretan bull, which would have um, made him sail to Crete. So he was on the island of Crete at one point or another. It's just um, the, the actual scene itself in the tapestry depicts him ramming a huge rod through the Minotaur, like killing it. Yeah. And he never killed the Minotaur. So that's kind of the misleading thing. And the Minotaur was never killed on the shores of Crete. It was killed in its labyrinth. In the labyrinth, yeah. <laughs> Why would it ever be outside the labyrinth? That's the right? whole point of the labyrinth. Exactly. And it's it clearly in. a half man, half bull. So it's not the original Cretan bull that Hercules. The mad bull. That... Exactly. So in the actual original Hellenic myth, um, Hercules was tasked with capturing, taming, and delivering the Cretan bull. So the original bull that was sent from the sea by Poseidon and was supposed to be sacrificed, but wasn't. Right. So, okay. Apparently this bull was freaking crazy. It was said to breathe fire. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, so it was like insane. Which makes me wonder how Pasiphae actually copulated with it. (laughs) Anyways. (laughs) And if it's breathing fire and she's in a wooden cow... (laughs) That doesn't add up either. <laughs> it could have been really wet wood, That's I suppose. That's actually hilarious. Yeah. Anyways, okay, so Hercules, he was tasked by this guy, this King Eurystheus. Eurystheus, sorry, I'm probably saying that wrong. <laughs> and um, this was kind of an effed up story in itself, which I'm not going to get into too, too much. But essentially, Hercules was driven to complete these 12 tasks after he, like, murdered his wife and his uh, son in, like, a maddened rage. Like, I can't remember which god, like, um, basically made him go crazy somehow. He did something. And anyway, so he's, like, he killed his wife. He killed his only son. He's, like, desperate for, like, redemption kind of thing. And so he goes and does these 12 impossible tasks in order to sort of regain his redemption and status. So essentially, yeah, like Hercules is successful. He captures the bull, brings it back to King Eurystheus. But this guy's kind of a dick and he just sets the bull free. (laughs) And so it starts roaming the Greek countryside, um, his own countryside, I would imagine, because he's a king. And it's just wreaking havoc on populations until it ended up in a place called Marathon in Greece. Mm -hmm. So this is where the story kind of goes full circle and Minos enters back into the narrative to face the destruction, his wife's sort of, um, the, yeah, his wife's bull lover kind of, um, committed in (laughs) Greece. And so essentially what happens was um, there was a Pan-Athenaic, 
games going on. Mm-hmm. So basically mm-hmm. like a pre-Olympic style games. Yeah. And King Minos's son, Androgynous, or sorry, Andro, Androgeus, Androgeus, <laughs> went to Marathon to participate. And while he was there, he was actually killed by the bull that impregnated his mother, Pasiphae. Wow. So Minos was clearly and obviously infuriated by this turn of events, even though he had a role to play in the creation of the bull and the maddening of it and all that stuff. And he basically demanded that Aegeus, the king of Athens at the time, um, was to send seven men and seven women every year to the Minotaur to avert the plague that was caused by um, the death of his son. Hmm. And um, a lot of people will read that differently. It wasn't a plague. It's just the fact that he was mad. So he's exacting tribute from the Athenians. It's kind of the other version of that. Yeah, okay. That so again, yeah. So King, a- King Aegeus is charged with the responsibility for the death of Minos' son. Therefore, it's up to him to send sacrifices to the bull. Okay. All right. So in sense. other versions, it wasn't every year. It was every seven years or every nine years. So... Again, discrepancies, but right the, the the every nine year we we saw that referenced in a few different documentaries, and that was mm-hmm. linked to the lunar uh, a certain lunar cycle through the constellations. That makes sense. Yeah, they were Which always obviously in tune they were with those. All about that, the Antikythera mechanism, mechanism things Woo-hoo. like that, right? Yeah. So in the third year of all of this, um, Theseus, the sing the son, sorry, of Aegeus, decided he was going to be one of these sacrifices and he was going to go and try and fight the bull, or sorry, the Minotaur, and end all of these sacrifices. So he wanted to do his dad a big favor. Right. But Aegeus, his um, father, was desperate to make him change his mind, but Theseus was determined. He wanted to slay this beast. So he went along with the others and um, basically knew that he was committing suicide, but he couldn't be stopped. He wanted to accomplish this. Mm-hmm. So he traveled to Crete, and then he actually ended up meeting uh, Princess Ariadne, and that was the daughter of King Minos. Really? Yes. Okay. Yes. And the princess fell madly in love with Theseus. She, like, <laughs> saw his uh, his stoic glance or, exactly. or something like that is how it was described. Was, as, oh, uh, is that the exact phraseology? Oh, something like that. Like, he his, uh, he showed no fear, like, exactly. about to go into this, this you know, How would you not be, like, totally enamored with someone like that? You're like, whoa. Like, you're like a true hero. That's That's what Greeks were all about. Definitely. So wanting to help him and not see him killed, obviously, she gifted him with a spool of thread, which was he was to unravel as he descended into the labyrinth so that he could find his way back out again. Right. A method used today for all kinds of uh, diving and things like that. Totally. So, okay, so he was actually successful. There's a whole big epic story. We're not going to get into all that. Mm -hmm. But... After he slayed the Minotaur, he um, initially made a promise to his father, Aegeus, that on his return, if he was to be successful, the ship would fly white flags. And if he died, they would sail black flags. And so there was a little bit of confusion. So last twist of this story. So upon his return sail home, he actually took Princess Ariadne with him. And essentially, um, at one stop along the way, she ended up getting sick or either left behind. There's a couple different versions. Yeah. And she got left behind. And so the ship had already departed. And that's when Theseus realized she wasn't on board. In other stories, he actually wanted to ditch her. <laughs> so there's <laughs> it confusion true there. true love, like they said. <laughs> yeah. But uh, anyways, yeah, so he, in his rage, as some accounts go, he forgot his promise to his father, and there were black flags sailing at the time when they returned to um, 
to Athens. And so as Aegeus spotted the ship coming in from the sea from a distance, he noted the black sails and swooning with grief, he dropped himself into the sea, committing suicide. Mm. And it's now known as the Aegean Sea. So that's there a cool little go. mythic story there. Yeah, that is really cool, actually. Yeah. Didn't even make that connection at all. Thank you for putting that in there. That's really cool. So that's kind of the end of uh, the myth, mythological element of um, the, you know, the whole myth of the Minotaur and everything. There's so much going on in here, so we wanted to just recap a second. Let's do that. I think that's a good idea. Yeah. Okay, so Hercules versus Theseus. Hercules doesn't kill anything. Right. He merely captures the bull that ends up being set free in a uh, marathon. Yes. Theseus is the one that actually kills the bull at Marathon and also the Minotaur. So he gets both of them. He's badass, man. Yeah. And, okay, so then we get... Um, yeah, Theseus again. So he he slays the Minotaur, thus saving his people from being sacrificed as a result of Minos's son's death. Okay. And I just put in a note here. I was like, you gotta appreciate the intricacies of these plots and how everything seems to come full circle in Greek mythology. No kidding, right? Right? Like, Minos is definitely getting his just desserts for being greedy, not sacrificing the bull. Like, holy moly, that's just a domino effect of problems for him, eh? Definitely. And obviously, there's so much personal metaphor embedded into all these stories, right? And that's part of the reason why they end up being viewed as simply mythological, but we're digging into the... digging in deeper, so... Mm -hmm. But... Yeah, anyway. Yeah. So, yeah, he gets his just desserts, ends up with a bastard half-son, half-bull thing. Yeah. An enchanted wife, a dead son, and a monstrous problem to deal with. You have to wonder <laughs> how this legend was spreading across the Mediterranean and the and the and what would be the Aegean and things like that. Like, how far this myth reached to. And that if you cross this King Minos, that you would end up in this labyrinth. Exactly. You know, like, was it just isolated to the to the island of Crete and then some, some sort of, you know, mainland villages and things like that? Or did this legend travel through travel with you know with traders and ships and things to the far reaches and that that's a good point yeah. and so you're saying this would have been contemporary to king minos's reign so like the the reach right. of the stories or because like there's the other idea that none of these stories existed until about a thousand years later when greeks started writing them down right kind of thing where they it was just the classic where a folkloric tale or a history turns into a folkloric tale, turns into a fantastic tale, turns into a mythology kind of thing. It's very similar, similar in a way to like King Solomon and the Lost Mines. Totally. Where, you know, yeah, at the time there's no documentation. People are writing about it later on. Was he an actual king or was it an amalgamation of multiple smaller tribal rulers and things like that? So, yeah, it's very similar. Yeah. So that is exactly what we're going to get into. More of the history behind the legends. But first... We have a little promo break for our friends at Double Density. Yeah. It's been a while since we've featured them. Totally. So. Shout out to Brian and Angelo. Mm-hmm. We love their show. If you guys haven't listened to Double Density, you got to go check it out. It's really fun. They do tech talk and paranormal. They yeah. really know their stuff with the tech too. So like that's... It's it, really helpful. It's super helpful. Mm-hmm. And just always a, entertaining. Always entertaining. Such a great show. Can't, I love the banter. <laughs> can't wait to do another collaboration with those guys. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be sweet. Great White North Legends Part 2. Yeah. If you haven't checked that one out, go back and listen to it. That was our first little collab with those guys. Super mm-hmm. fun. So yeah, Take a listen to this promo and uh, make sure to subscribe to Double Density. From Apple products to Zelda games and from aliens to zombies, we are Double Density. Tech tales and paranormal primers with your hosts, Brian and Angelo. New episodes every Wednesday. DoubleDensity.net
So now let's get into some of the history behind all this stuff. Yeah, let's do it. Beginning with the cult of the bull and Mm -hmm. the idea that the bull was quite sacred in Greek culture. Or Crete culture, sorry. Pre-Greek. Pre-Greek. Yeah. (laughs) Creek? Creek. Creek. Creek (laughs) culture. (laughs) Little Creek dressing. (laughs) Yeah, that's a a local joke. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) only people from the Okanagan will know that. Crete and Greek sound so similar, too, when you, like, say them fast. It's like, anyways. But in Crete culture, there is definitely no doubt that bulls played a very significant role in the religion and also the everyday life. Yeah. Um, The bulls represented a blurring between notions of the civilized and the primitive wild inside. Right. Kind of like the idea of like the savage, uncontrollable natures of man. And the minotaur was the cherry on top for this because you get the the conflagration, right, of bull and man together in one physical form. Which is just like the tension with that would be... Anyways. Um, So it is actually evidence that there were these... (laughs) very specific type of bulls used in Crete culture. They were crossbreed urals, and these were massive, massive bulls. Huge. The most aggressive as well. And they were used in ceremonies. They were kept by royalty. um, And they were considered an honored guest, kind of like an envoy of the natural world. And could definitely take, like, you could almost even say, like, gods would take the form of the bull, and and like, like we saw in that one story where... Exactly that. Zeus takes the form of the bull. Right. Takes the form of the eagle. All these sort of... uh, The lion, too, I would imagine, would figure in prominently. But uh, exactly that. Like, we had some cool quotes from this history doc that we watched. And it was kind of like the idea that bull leaping is as much self-belief as it is religious belief. So it's like a test of the will, test of the self. Yeah. And and I also really like this one where they said, the bull charges because he does. Man leaps because he chooses to. Not specifically referring to the sport of bull leaping. Right. Mm-hmm. And also embedded within that sentence is the is the em- emphasizing the difference between beast and man, obviously. The totally. idea of free will and, yeah, uh, and being able to make the choice and think critically about what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And I guess both of those are tied directly to the idea of Theseus too. Essentially bull leaping as self-belief as much as religious. Or sorry, I guess the second one. Because he does mm-hmm. man leaps because he chooses to. Because Theseus chose to conquer that fear or take on that challenge or whatever totally but the sport of bull leaping and dancing i mean obviously we still sort of get this today with the matadors right Mm -hmm. and it's kind of funny that you don't it's not associated with crete crete or greek culture it's no in spain well and you get the rodeo culture over here too right Mm -hmm. yeah some people think that is essentially like an impossible activity for anyone to to have survived this sort of bull leaping obviously the dancing would be a little bit different and that it may actually represent a mythological dance with the great bull. Mm-hmm. So, well, actually, I really think that um, like bull leaping and bull dancing were almost kind of one and the same thing. Okay, like, so it's the, just the phrased. dance of the bull, like you know, where you're you're doing exactly that, like right, kind of tempting it. Very similar to the matadors. Actually, I never even thought about except that. for the fact that in this version, obviously, there you're literally like leaping through the horns of the bull. Catapulting through. You're trying to leap over top of it as it charges you rather than just to like trick it with the red sheet and get out of the way. Mm -hmm. So yeah, like I made the point here of how it kind of reminded me of like a football kicking a, kicking a field goal and how it's like, not, (laughs) not that there's any real connection here mythological wise, but that it's just like, you know, going through the horns, going, crossing the threshold, Mm -hmm. going through the gauntlet. It's a rite of passage. Um, yeah, there's there's metaphor in crossing that plane yeah. that's between those two horns of this massive beast. 
And I love that. Yeah, I think I that's really so cool. I really love that. The idea, yeah, exactly. It's a threshold. And so when you pass through that, you're actually entering through to another side. And you get all these images uh, from Minoan Crete where you see exactly that. Um, there's pictures of people grabbing the bull by the horns. There's pictures of them catapulting over the back of it and then landing, almost somersaulting and landing on their feet on the other side. Yeah. And if you were able to do that successfully, could you not imagine the feeling that you would have? You'd be like, I'm invincible. I've, yeah. I have done it. Like, I've made it. I'm a man now. No <laughs> like, kidding, right? So I think that, that it's totally plausible that people were actually doing this. Like, I don't think, I I don't think, think it so. was just an analogy. Like, Not you know, at all. Like, I mean, a... no, I don't think it would be at all either. I mean, mm -hmm. obviously, there, there, there's human ritual sacrifice that's definitively a real thing. Why wouldn't you be jumping over a bull? There's no metaphor here. These were real ceremonies, yeah. I think. Mm -hmm. And they took place at Knossos. Mm -hmm. And there's been, there's basically this massive area that, that's bigger than the size of four tennis courts where this was the site of bull leaping, or at least that's where some theorized this was the uh, the court where this took place mm -hmm. or was performed. And it would have also been a stage for other religious rituals as well and ceremonies to celebrate the gods and sacrifices of slaves and things like that. Totally. They got into some weird stuff with sacrificing slaves that we're Eesh. not going to get into today, but there's lots even. of bestiality, yeah. things like that. <laughs> uh, things got strange on uh, ancient Crete. Yeah, I really love that part where they did the wide panning shot from the air, aerial shot of that, exactly that immense central court there. Yeah. Where um, you could even, yeah, there would have been celebrations during harvest for the gods. There would have been just like a massive amount of people there, which would have been just insane to think about, right? Like the amount of people that could fit on that. I don't know. I feel like it would have been really fun to be part of Minoan culture. Oh man, it would have been really, especially for you because yeah, it was because actually more, good for women. It's more egalitarian. It's more um, Republican. It's, it seems like a really good place to be like really. Definitely. Anyways. Unless you were one <laughs> of the slaves. I mean, they still took slaves and they still, you know. <laughs> they did. We should get some slaves. You need to be on top with all these <laughs> yeah. civilizations. But just to go back to the courtyard, I mean, the the fact that frescoes have been found, pottery with depictions of these acts happening and, and the bull jumping and things like that, and then obviously this massive four tennis court sized complex area mm. kind of goes to show that no doubt there would have been bulls kept for these specific purposes. And they were these crazy mm -hmm. hybrid Ural bulls that were really aggressive and really huge. Mm -hmm. The question is, could there have been one as brutish as the Poseidon mythical yeah. bull that he brought King Minos. To have that reputation, right? As right. that bull. And I think, I mean, I think very much so. Mm -hmm. I mean, no doubt. But at the same time, there's little evidence to support the idea that obviously a woman can copulate. We know that's not a thing. No. So there's there's magic involved in this, possibly. Yeah, or metaphor, insertions of metaphor. Right. Kind of. mm -hmm. A little bit of both, possibly. Yeah. I mean, that, yeah, we're always treading that, towing that line of real and, and, and not real. I think that the, the homunculus episode was the perfect yeah. <laughs> example of that because it's like, yeah, it's smack dab on the line and people are kind of flip-flopping back and forth between it. Add some semen and then it's real. Oh, but it's actually just magic. Oh, wait a second. Maybe oh, it's girl. real. Oh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So but, definitely, yeah, there isn't really, I'm not going to say there's much to support the idea that there was ever an actual minotaur itself that was a half man, half bull. Not I could literally. definitely see it being a case where there was a labyrinth of sorts with an insane maddened bull that could have been King Minos's prize bull, which was essentially used for... To, to get rid of all of his enemies. <laughs> well, and to create fear. And to create fear. Yeah. That would have been that would have been an even more important function. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So okay. So that's kind of 
it's all up in the air, right? But I think that there is some basis for that part of the myth in reality, in history. Um, Another question we get with these myths, I thought this was fun, Um, Diodalus. So the architect, the exiled architect that Mm -hmm. ends up constructing the cow in which Pasiphae hides and then also constructs the labyrinth itself. Right. So was he a real dude? I don't know. Answers are mixed. I mean... I came up with some really cool stuff, though. Okay. So... A lot of the times, this guy, Diodalus, or Diodalus, yeah, I'm just going to refer to him as that, um, he was kind of referred to as, like, the ancient world's um, version of, like, a mix of Tesla and Wright. So Like, like one of the Wright brothers. Exactly. Right, okay. So, yeah, just, like, very inventive, very just, just a brilliant man. A little eccentric. Genius. Exactly. So he had the theory, and then he also had the practice. He was able to construct a lot of these things. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Apparently, though, um, Greek philosopher Socrates actually claimed to be a descendant of Diodalus in at least three of Plato's books, wow. including, um, oh my gosh, I can't even, Meno, Alcibiades, <laughs> Alcibiades, yeah. and uh, Urethro. Urethro. Sounds like Urethro. I'm saying urethra. Mm. It sounds like you're saying Heathrow. That's an airport somewhere, isn't it? I don't know. Sure but in where. one book, he actually says, he states, so- Socrates states, your statements Eurythrio, sorry, <laughs> seemed to belong to my ancestor, Diodalus. Hmm. So he refers directly to like a lineage connecting to it, which, okay, so. <laughs> That's a pretty strong So claim. this was very common in Greek, the Greek world to connect yourself with mythological beings. A lot of people would even extend that lineage directly to Zeus himself. Mm-hmm. And actually, um, Diodalus's lineage in Greek um Greek mythology does extend to Zeus, so somehow he is a descendant. But the actual name uh, derives from the Greek word diodalos, which means cunningly wrought or to work artfully. Okay, so there could be metaphor embedded in the name Definitely. itself for this. But it's not as if like he isn't mentioned in other uh, historical documents, things like the Iliad. So Homer was actually the first to mention Diodalus as the designer of Princess Ariadne's dancing ground. Right. And I was like, oh, dancing ground. Wait a second. Was that the immense central court? I don't know. Okay. I didn't get... dancing, dancing ground. Exactly. He's definitely referenced later on by Herodotus too, who, who of course took great influence from Homer. So that probably would have been where it came totally. from. Totally. I think Pliny the Elder might have mentioned him too. I'm not 100% on that one. But um, this one historian slash like scholar in the field of exactly that, like Greek mythology and stuff, mm-hmm. this person named Robin Fox in their book, Traveling Heroes in the Epic Age of Homer, they kind of argue that, because it, it, again, it Homer is the earliest reference for Diodalus. So some people think that he actually invented Diodalus. But they argue, so Fox argues that it's used as a reference point in Homer's story, ergo, it existed prior to his creation. Right. Like it shows up as more of a reference point than an actual invention. Exactly. So it says here, he is a point of comparison. And so he belongs in stories which Homer's audiences already recognize. I see. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting. So again, yeah, he could have been real. He could have uh, been an architect of sorts. Who knows if you actually constructed that wooden bowl? Yeah. <laughs> I would really love to find out. Imagine I'm, if you found that. If you're like excavating um, like Kenosos or a site near Kenosis and you come across this thing. Or you come across anything that has the artist's 
that it's attached to the actual artist True. itself, right? Or, like or if something... only the Antikythera mechanism had a little had a little signature and one of the plates on who who the hell built this thing. If it was just one person, it could have been multiple people, obviously. True, that's very true. So we're kind of dealing with the same questions with the character of Theseus as well. Definitely. I'm, but but before we even get into it, I I definitely am leaning towards Diodalus being more likely a real person, mm-hmm. um, and just having a name because back in the day too, people's names were often. Well, associated with what they did exactly. or what they were good at, exactly. um, especially in like um, like Eastern cultures, like in in India and things like that. Like, I mean, I guess that's more modern, maybe with caste systems and things. But like, your last name is attributed to like your your uh, vocation and things like that. That happened the all the time in Europe too. Right? Yeah, like, for you know, sure. Yeah, um, no, that's actually a really good point, and I I think I'm coming along the same lines as you. Like, even you could have even gone the reverse argument with that, right? Where this guy, his name was Diodalus. And because he was such a skilled artisman or whatever, skilled architect, they actually ended up attributing his name to that craft. Right. So maybe he was the origins or maybe it was the other way around. I, okay. Yeah, I could go both could ways. Go either way. <laughs> so is Theseus a real dude? We don't know. Theseus is part of the foundation myth relating to Athens. Mm-hmm. So he is likely to be the summation of a number of strong leaders who created the systems and united the tribes that actually built up Attica with Athens as the major city of this region, rather, you know, rather similar to the story of uh, Romulus and Remus found in Rome. Mm-hmm. So kind of similar to that. But since Athens had no real re- recorded history until about 700 BC, mm-hmm. any stories that were handed down by word of mouth, you know, of course, some of them being glorified in, in the, the telling, telling of yeah, those exactly. stories, right? And I actually have a point about that too. Yeah, so like the idea, exactly. So about 700 BCE. So all of these events are happening at least a thousand years earlier. Way before. Way earlier. Probably, probably roughly a thousand years before. So like I said, right? Like what if Theseus became this guy that myth, the mythical man that defeated the Minotaur when probably what he did is he went in like a bureaucratic envoy to Crete in order to renegotiate the terms of tribute. And he was probably successful in his diplomacy and therefore in coming back, um, who knows what happened with his actual dad and that whole death story and whatever else. But maybe that part is true, actually. Maybe if he said, I'm unsuccessful in my negotiations here, I will fly the black flags. Who knows? Anyways, But that to me could be something that eventually conflated and exaggerated and made up into this huge epic story, right? Of course, I can and, totally and see that. vilifying Minos to a certain extent, right? Well, especially when the masses that are spreading the story are, you know, just the, the general populations of Crete. It's not necessarily this story being spread amongst di- diplomats mm-hmm. or uh, even amongst high-level high traders and things like that, merchants and things. This would be diffusing through the, the lesser... Exactly. So it's like a, a really big game of, what is it called, like telephone? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Totally. <laughs> Where it just gets, a little things get added in or changed around or whatever as the story progresses. And then a thousand mm-hmm. years later, you finally get it written down and it is completely different from what you said. But you know what's interesting though, too? It almost seems like at a certain point, it stops changing. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like once the myth is settled in, it doesn't change anymore. Maybe it settled in as soon as they wrote it down with like Pliny the Elder and Possibly. Homer and stuff. But mm-hmm. uh, you could also argue too that maybe... Maybe there wasn't as much variation. Maybe there was more truth to it, and that's why it ended up sticking at one point. Got narrowed down a little bit. All right, so we're kind of moving into whether or not King Minos was a real person. But before we do that, we wanted to get some more background on Minoan culture to kind of prop up the arguments for and against whether or not he's real or not. But before we do any of that, uh, we're going to take a quick promo break for... 
Straight Up Enigmas. Yeah. Yeah. It's a pretty new podcast, about four months in. And uh, so they're just really getting started and settled. And it's a fun mix. So you got Fortiana in there. You got Unsolved Crime. You got uh, Paranormal, all sorts of stuff. Definitely. And it's just really anything that's unexplained. So you can look forward to, yeah, all sorts of fun stuff from them. And yeah, go check it out. Sounds good. Hello, listeners. I'm Jaden McKell, and welcome to Straight Up Enigmas, a podcast to explore the unexplained. Spine-tingling supernatural stories, true crime, and riddles from the ancient world are all things to expect when you tune in to Straight Up Enigmas. Like the time we discussed the mysterious death of Alyssa Lamb, or share terrifying true stories from real people about sleep paralysis and shadow people. In one of our most recent episodes, I told the story of Debbie Kent, the sister of my dad's best friend from high school, who was abducted and murdered by serial killer Ted Bundy. Join us every Tuesday and dive into the world's weirdest riddles, unsolved cold cases, and ghostly encounters. You can find our Straight Up Strange episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome back. It's time for Coffee Gator Trivia Question Time. Oh, uh, yeah. Woo! So last week we had a bit of a blunder with the sort of finer points of the question, and uh, we touched on that in our Film Friday episode, and also give a shout out to the gentleman who pointed it out. Sometimes uh, there's so much content we're dealing with, uh, things can get a little hairy. They get but lost in the mix. we are certain that this one uh, is, uh, is, is perfect. This, this is a no-brainer. No-brainer. So... Here's the question, and uh, yeah, okay, here's the question. It's coming from our Thunderbirds episode, all right? What was the name of the young boy who, in 1977, was almost carried away by an alleged Thunderbird while playing in his Illinois home's backyard? First and last name. First and last name of the young boy, again, 1977, almost carried away by a Thunderbird, or Mm -hmm. a Territory, if you will, while playing in his backyard home in Illinois. So, hop over to IntoThePortal.com. Yes. Check the tab, this Coffee Gator contest. It's the very first tab there at the top. Yeah. And uh, submit your answer. Exactly. And you'll get entered to win a stainless steel French press from Coffee Gator. And, of course, you can always get 15% off your purchase from Coffee Gator using our promo code QUARK, Q-U-A-R-K. So, yeah, visit coffeegator.com to start drinking better coffee today. Mm-hmm. Alrighty, and now for some Minoan Crete culture yeah, background. Definitely. Let's get into it. <laughs> All right. So, this, like we've alluded to, was a very stable, prosperous environment for several generations, but they were around on the island for a very long time. Like, the first settlements were in about, in and about uh, 7,000 BC. So, they were quite well established and had right. their glory days. Yeah. Yeah, the glory days were about 1700s to like 16 whatevers. And then we have a dramatic collapse about midway through the 1400s. Yes, we do. So one thing I thought was really interesting about Minoan Crete is the fact that we're dealing with an island here. So limited resources. They had to outsource a lot of stuff, yes. including all of their building materials for their palaces that subsequently came as well. As they, they didn't have any bronze. No. So they had no copper and no tin on the island. So they would have had to outsource this. Um, traveling abroad, 
So again, this would have made them players on the world stage and perhaps explains why they have this artistic sort of inclination. Maybe they thought they needed to offer something unique to the world, right? Yeah. And if you have that sort of prestige and whatever, if you don't have a lot of resources per se, then you can get away with that. But anyways, that's just my idea on the whole thing. No, I mean, I'm, I'm with you on that. That makes so, sense. So yeah, they definitely were players on the world stage, the ancient world stage, as you want to call it. Yeah. Um, and though, obviously, there was a lack of record keeping about their history, other civilizations in the area did keep mentions of trade and relations with the Minoans. And there was this one record um, in the Egyptian tribute payments, and it was they were called the people of Kifu. But actually, when you look at the frescoes and the images, the the things that they're carrying uh, are very Minoan. They're carrying highly decorative pottery, um, all sorts of artifacts like that. And so it definitely rings true of the Minoans. And they had Mm. other sort of luxury items as well. They did indeed. Um, Before we get into that, though, I just wanted to make the point too, like, yeah, they're traveling extensively. We've made the reference too with the idea that possibly the Minoans even made contact in North America. Possibly. Um, they're, they're linked to even the ideas of Mystery Hill and things like that. That's interesting you say that because uh, I was re-watching a few history documentaries on Minoan culture and their ships in particular. And how essentially these were like um, just giant canoes that were made of very simple material. So just wood and then coated with, I think it was a lining of hide but how these were just open vessels and they would have been operated by rowers and there would have been about 20 20 rows of rowers, I believe, that could fit. And it just wasn't, they were very, very fragile. Definitely short transport vessels, but if they were needing copper and tin, we know that copper and tin were coming from, for example, the British Isles in this ancient time during the Bronze Age. Mm-hmm. So that's not that far. That's not North America, obviously, but we talked about people oh, there's hop, other sources. Skip, hop skipping and jumping Even from the Even the Turkish north. Peninsula has a lot. Like, that was a hot zone for right. tin and copper. So they would have partnered possibly with the income, you know, the, Phine- the developing Phoenicians and their seafaring trade and things like that. Oh, yeah. And they would have touched on something that was known as Minoan purple, mm-hmm. believe it or not. So one of the luxury products the Minoans were known for, among many of them, was literally just purple. The color purple. Simply referred to as purple. Right? And this was derived from underwater snails that essentially feed on rotting flesh of other animals on the seafloor and develop this color in, I think it's in their intestine? I don't know. Anyway, it's inside them. Purple ooze. Purple ooze, that's right. So the purple was extracted and became one of the most highly prized items in the ancient world. It was reserved for heroes, warriors, emperors, priestesses, anybody who could afford it, essentially, and who was important enough. Mm -hmm. So this purple ooze was worth its weight in silver. Essentially, the color purple meant glamour, status, wealth, goes along with all of those titles I just said. Mm -hmm. And Pliny the Elder described the imperial purple as the color of congealed blood reserved for only the noblest heroes and gods. Mm-hmm. Pretty crazy, right? The color of Kajil. And even more interesting, this is so far back in the day, but there's evidence of farming of these snails. It wasn't just foraging for them. Mm-hmm. There's evidence of snail farming um, in ancient in ancient shells of these snails that were, you know, been, were cannibalized by other snails, which is an indication that they were confined, mm-hmm. kept in one location and almost like a fish farm style, pretty exactly. advanced technology. That wasn't the best. It was crowded conditions for crowded the snails. Crowded conditions for the snails. <laughs> I, we didn't write down the exact number here, but it took, 
I think a couple thousand or something. I think at least a to, thousand to get like an ounce of uh, purple or something. Right, or... to dye like one small Oh, to dye the hem of a skirt. Right, mm-hmm. that's what it was. So yeah. it's like, dang, that's that's definitely pretty, uh, that's like diamonds today, right? Yeah. I mean. It's very cool. Yeah. I really loved that whole segment on that history doc we watched. I was like, purple ooze. I never even thought about where purple. I've heard of like green before as like being, because like, it has a reputation of being very poisonous. Right. And people that had like green wallpaper sometimes were actually poison <laughs> or a green dress. You could die <laughs> if you're wearing a green dress. Yeah. But anyways, yeah, purple. I thought that was really neat. There's other things about um, Minoan Crete that is very different from a lot of other contemporary cultures or antecedent cultures that came after. Um, For example, they weren't very... So they had something like the purple as like a luxury item, but the the architecture itself was very austere, not uh, speaking to that sort of like grandeur um, that like emperors and other sorts of uh, rulers, like pharaohs and stuff were kind of attuned to. Sure. But... Palaces came around about a thousand years after bronze reached the island, which indicates that, of course, Minoan Crete was engaged in trade for about a thousand years and influences from the areas they were visiting um, were being bought back. Right. So bring, being brought back, sorry, that was yes. a good sentence. And so the idea that they're visiting these places where and bringing back stories of these amazing grand buildings that basically take your breath away. Right. And so they begin to want to emulate that. And so, of course, yeah, heavily influenced by the exchange of creative, um, creative people and tradespeople. Um, a lot of the times, the top of their craft were sent by their ruler or their king to other lands to sort of impress this other civilizations and also to do reconnaissance and exchange of ideas so they could kind of come about with these. And that's why you get, there's not just one labyrinth in, um, in the Mediterranean. There's about four. Yes. Including in, uh, in Egypt. So I think some people think that that's where the Minoans got the idea for their own labyrinth. But I think that's, I don't know, you can go either way with that. But anyways, so exactly that. So they started building these elaborate palaces, including the Palace of Knossos. Other things like, okay, so record keeping. I thought this was kind of interesting too. These tablets that were found that have this very crude sort of um, pre-Mycenaean type of text on them, seemingly. Yeah. So mm-hmm. they were attributed to Minoan Crete. And they only reference, like, exactly what I said, like the uh, economic transactions, the idea of counting each sheep of each shepherd, and all that stuff. So it was basically bean counting. <laughs> Pay- payment transactions and, and and debts and things like that. Yeah. Exactly. And there was, there's, there was a hive of activity. Like, around the 1600s BCE, this was about the golden age of Minoan Crete, uh, a time when one could sit back and enjoy the fruits of the collective effort. <laughs> uh, and yeah. Bathe Pietro, or Pietro was one of these hives of activity where it was a central place where olives and grape fields dominated uh, productivity. But a mere 30 years after it was constructed, Bathe Pietro experienced its first earthquake, which was a very sinister foreshadowing mm. for what was to come for indeed, the Minoans. Indeed. Yeah. I also had some notes here on the goddesses of Minoan Crete. It is known, well, it's believed now that Minoans had a um, multi-deistic or theistic, sorry, uh, religious sort of... Yeah, there was more than one god and there was more than... I don't know what I was going (laughs) to... They had a multi-theistic religion is what I was trying to say. There you go, there you go. (laughs) 
but they worship goddesses. They had a plethora of them, each responsible for their own sort of aspects of something like the ripening of the grapes, the keeper of the rains, the um, the bringer of earthquakes, <laughs> whatever, or the, the, the keeper of earthquakes. I don't know. Sure, sure. Way. But they were all entirely female. And the priesthood was actually entirely female too, which kind of speaks to this idea that it was more egalitarian, power was shared equally amongst men and women, and this is all depicted in frescoes and sculptures as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I had this one quote from History Museum here. It says, the fact, um, in fact, the role of women as religious leaders, entrepreneurs, traders, craftspeople, and athletes far exceeded uh, that of most other societies, including the Greeks. Hmm. Yeah. This one particular goddess uh, is quite widely depicted. Uh, it's a snake goddess. Snake. And she was to be respected and feared. And you can see her. She's a figurine. It's a primeval sort of figure swathed in snakes from her waist up to the tip of her hat. Oh, that's so cool. And it's the same one that Arthur Evans actually uncovered. And he kind of crudely remarked on her exposed breasts and kind of came up with this stupid um, pseudo theory that all Minoan women dressed in this way, exposing their breasts. That they never wore tops. Exactly. Right. Except for the fact that very soon after... After this, he would find other frescoes that weren't like that. Um, <laughs> one of the most more famous ones. I'll mention it late in, in a uh-huh. minute here, but just to go, just to just to just to your point of how egalitarian and how developed they were. This fresco that they found, they called it La Parisienne. I think is what they yes, called it. Yes, and it was very because it looked as if it could have been a woman walking down the street in Paris. modern day Paris mm-hmm. in the 1800s, and nobody there. would even know. No, it looked very European. Yeah, very refined, very high culture. Oh, yeah. So women were very, exactly that. It was very egalitarian. It was very equal. I thought another interesting aspect of their religion, though, was these underground caves where religious ceremonies were performed. Very cool. And narcotics would have been used as well. Mm -hmm. So these subterranean ceremonies um, involved opium. And there's actually a goddess that is depicted holding poppy seeds from her arms, kind of inviting those to partake in her bounty. Yeah. And so it kind of, like, speaks to this very... Uh, oh, just like a, a salt of the earth connection to, to that too, right? Those natural cycles. The Minoans were deeply in tune with these natural forces that yeah. essentially decided their fates, right? Yeah. If you have a, if you have two bad harvests, you're basically wiped out, or a lot of your, the majority of your civilizations wiped out, and then the elites would survive. <laughs> but even the elites, right, were not very elite in this culture. It's like, you don't get the things like walled cities. You don't get separate fortresses where elites would kind of sequester themselves. Um, it's just very, like I keep saying, egalitarian. Yeah, no, not as much fear-based politics, not as much, yeah, It just seems like more society. common places, too. Obviously, there was several different entrances into the Palace of Kenosis, and some of them seem to be privilege access, some of them seem to be, like, servants access or something like that. Mm-hmm. But, again, like... Like we said, like there's not even a grand, um, like a grand uh, a palace where you get like a throne. Like there is a throne, they but it's very austere. They find a throne austere. room, but it's not necessarily what you would expect. No. We'll, we'll touch on that in a minute. Yeah. But yeah, no, I mean. So that's kind of just like background and building up, like you get a more of a general sense of what this culture was. So now we can kind of ask the question, like, was King Minos a real dude? Right. I mean, judging by how they, how they had things shake down. He doesn't really seem like he would be, at least in terms of how he's described in the legends. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there definitely would have been centralized power, centralized control. They still would have had to have a military of mm-hmm. some kind or a navy of some kind and, and someone to direct them. Exactly. Which would have been a king or someone like a king, a or tribal ruler. Or some sort ruler. of a government body. Yeah. A corporate body, which a lot of people do think that... 
it was more of a bureaucracy. It was a king surrounded by a, a, exactly a, that. A court that, of decision makers. Of, yeah. So it's not... Uh, yeah, it's not, it's not supreme the, power. Right, so it's leading in. This is the early stages, potentially, of what would become Greek democracy that we know and love today, right? Well, kind of, yeah. It, it does remind me of almost like uh, Rome, right? Where you yeah. get uh, that sort of Republican-style setup until they just kind of devolved into, uh, yeah, like, yeah. A, and, and, what am I trying to say? An imperial <laughs> sort of setup? Anyways. Yeah. <laughs> So like I said before, kind of similar to King Solomon, uh, like like very much like Theseus is, same with King Minos, because the, fig- the figure himself, King Minos, appears to sort of be based on a number of different strong kings or rulers who built and maintained this palace at Knossos over thousands of years, essentially, mm-hmm. and who probably demanded tribute from other states during their reign. So, tribute from states like Athens. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. So you can see why... I mean, the the name Minos is just so catchy, too. Like, I don't even want to break it down to something as simple as that. But I feel like as soon as that became a part of any ancient story, it's like, that was going to stick. Hmm. You know what I mean? King Minos, King Midas with the gold, King whatever. It's funny you say that. Very... I literally had King Midas pop in my head. I was like, oh, is he the guy that turns everything into gold? No, yeah. wait, that's King Midas, not yeah. King Minos. <laughs> no, no. I'm sure he wished he would could have, though. But uh, yeah, so there seems to be no real strong evidence to suggest that King Minos ever really existed as an individual on the island of Crete. Mm-hmm. But you could say the same for a figure like King Arthur, and there's many people who believe he was very much a real person. But instead of kings and princesses, many now believe that that it was a king with a group, like you said. So, like, yeah, more Republican. Uh, what do you make of that, really? Like, I think it's very well supported by um, the setup of their economy. There's this quote here. I'll just read out. It mm-hmm. says, Successive and extensive trade resulted in a Minoan society that was wealthy, and archaeology suggests that the wealth was widely shared throughout the community. The extensive written records that do exist have been deciphered to show a highly controlled flow of goods in and out of state storehouses. So I just wrote in brackets, it was like, they're a bunch of commies. <laughs> <laughs> so it's all like state owned. And that, that to me is interesting. I think that they were very unique in, in the ancient world. And I think they, I, I honestly, I'm going to go to geography for this. The fact that they were on an island with finite resources maybe helped sort of foster this collective sense of unity and yeah and more of like like we're saying like a democratic style of being definitely not maybe written down as like you know like this is the way it is but maybe they just embodied it naturally i think that makes sense the from coming from the perspective of the mainland and the mycenaeans later on though the idea of whether or not minos could be real or not they they hated crete right i mean it was their enemy of the the mycenaean greeks Mm -hmm. so in that sense, thinking of, thinking of it that way, he's he's a he's a figure at the top of everything they hate, right? Mm-hmm. Of the, of these people that they they claimed allegedly were cannibals on this island, and that they copulated with bulls, right, mm-hmm. and things like that, or made their slaves copulate with bulls, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I don't know. That's kind of important to. To, to mention because there's this tribute from the Athenians to King Minos, right? Mm-hmm. Over the years, these slaves have to be sent for the sacrifice. So there's this connection Supposedly. here between Athens and Minos, but is that just to bolster the hatred for... Well, exactly. F- for, for essentially the patriotism of, of the Athenians, really. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It seems to be a... Um, 
oh, what's it called? Like a antagonistic relationship, yeah, to say the least. And the idea, exactly that, that um, this legend that Minos commanded could be an extended metaphor for the idea that the Minoans were exacting tribute from yeah, Athenians, and that's, right. that's just. They were considered superior at one point or another, but then eventually they ended up toppling, and that has a lot of different reasons or, you know, like, um, yeah. connective factors, but yeah. we'll get into that in a second of here. Of course, the, the Knossos is the other main part, and I am just baffled and blown away that it's essentially pre-Neolithic, or, well, just it's post-Neolithic. It's in the Neolithic era. Yeah. Yeah, so, like, the first sort of palace, or I'm not even going to call it a palace, it's just settlement. settlement. yeah. Was established in about, yeah, in and about there. So the 7,000 BCE during the Neolithic period, sorry. And this was a quote just here. It says, the economic, social, and political development of the settlement led to the construction of the majestic palace at Knossos towards the end of the second millennium BCE. Mm. So it says here, the first palace was actually destroyed in 1700 BCE. And it doesn't say how, but it was actually rebuilt and then destroyed again by fire definitively in 1350. And then since then, the environs of the palace were transformed into a sort of a sacred grove and was never inhabited again, but kind of just the site of just awe and like, you know, like uh, so much history there yeah. too. And it was interesting here, the mainland Greeks who, uh, again, eventually overran the palace were amazed at the complexity and the size of this structure, covering over six acres, containing something like... 1,300 rooms. Massive. So this in itself, the complexity, actually helped to produce this sort of idea of a labyrinth. Right. And so a lot of these guys connected the palace itself with the myth. And there is some people that would argue against that. But again, um, we'll get into that. That's kind of our, that's what we're going to finish off the episode with. Where could this labyrinth be? Right. But before we get into all that, we want to get into some of these excavations. Definitely. And I came across one that was quite early. We're not going to focus on him too much, but in about seven, oh, sorry, 1878, there was this wealthy guy by the name of Minos Kalokinarios, and he actually excavated Crete while it was under Turkish occupation. Interesting, okay. Apparently he, yeah, he excavated a large part of what's called the West Magazines and brought about um, many of these large pithoi storage pots like the Alibaba and all that to light. So this guy was actually born in um, 1843. So he was about, he was about 35 when he started excavating. Mm -hmm. He was a Greek, I believe. He attended school on the island of Syros, and he also attended the University of Athens. And he's also quite accomplished in the soap industry, apparently. Really? That's (laughs) random. All right, why not? This is a quote, though, um, just in a biography about him. And it says here, in 1878, his passion for archaeology and classical studies led him to attempt the first systematic excavations at Knossos, which brought the first finds from the Minoan Palace to light. These comprise the Kalokiniaros private collection held at the site where the Kalokiniaros mansion, so this is his private mansion, was later built. The finds were destroyed when the mansion burnt to the ground during the riots of 1898. That's frustrating. Isn't that really frustrating? I was like, I was devastated when I saw that. Yeah, that sucks. So he was, he did some excavating, but again, didn't really uncover too, too much. He he did have his own collection, but gone. That's such a shame. I mean, we, we hear about that quite often with, with stories like this. Obviously, it sucks. It's, it's really unfortunate. But luckily, there were others um, in and around the same time that were excavating in Turkey and in on the island of Crete 
That had oh, found some Schliemann. interesting things. That's right. right. So uh, another gentleman who came along sh- sort of shortly after this was a guy ha- named Heinrich Schliemann. We're not going to get into too much detail on him, but he was a wealthy German industrialist uh, businessman who became enamored with the story of Troy and Helen of Troy, her lost jewels, essentially. Mm-hmm. So he ended up spending a, a big bag of money and acquiring land, um, you know, stepping on a lot of toes along the way. Actually, yeah. it deserves its own episode, quite frankly. Oh, it does. But he ended up discovering what he believed to be the jewels of Helen of Troy, which actually ended up being even older than what the the story of Troy would have dated the palace to have been, mm-hmm. and became this massive story in archaeology. Oh, it's huge. Massive. And he became associated as well with a guy by the name of Sir Arthur Evans, who, in, a, in a, you know, about a 30-year period, around 1900 to 1931, was engaged in various excavations exclusively on the island of Crete. And he was inspired by Schliemann's finds because he thought... This guy was obsessed with the myth of Troy, and he, and he found it. Exactly. Right? Like, it was all just considered pure myth, pure story. Right. There was nothing to actually support the evidence that it really existed. Exactly. So this guy, Arthur Evans, was kind of in a similar situation. He became obsessed with Greek myths and exclusively the the idea of this myth of the Minotaur and the labyrinth at mm-hmm. Knossos. And so he, so he wanted to find it. He, had, he was the son of a guy who was already in the industry. So John Evans was his father, who was an archaeologist uh, high up there in sort of the British uh, geographic so, society, things like that. Yeah. Super wealthy. I can't remember what his finds were that made him so yeah. like, famous. But Me neither. Whatever. It's, we can pull that up. I mean, it, it's definitely in the notes if you guys want to look into John Evans. But... Arthur Evans was kind of choked because he was known, he was being called Little Evans by people. He was just in his father's shadow, right? And he wanted to try to find something to trump his dad's discoveries. So, yeah, he saw himself as this adventurous character, and he, based on the books he had read as a child, he used all this family money, went east to try to find some adventure. So, first off, he tried to go to Turkey got arrested. He was accused of actually spying for Russia. Um, (laughs) So he he ended up making it out of this basically because of his deep pockets back to Europe, but he was relatively lost. He found himself in a position at Oxford in a, I believe it was the research department on (laughs) department, department, uh, (laughs) on a favor to his father. He hated it. He Mm. was, he, it was boring. He wasn't really, this is another thing to kind of put him under his father's shadow. He wasn't getting anything out of this Mm. at all. So and and the struggle with him with this is because this was a period of great discovery. People were finding stuff all over the world. Their archaeolo- This was the golden age of archaeology, and he was missing out on it. So he ends up going there. He he, he goes to Crete. Okay, eighteen eighteen eighty three was when he actually discovered Schliemann was onto something and was oh, inspired okay. by Schliemann. Sorry, I'm just kind of uh, catching up here with mm-hmm. my dates. Yeah, but. What he wanted to do was begin to search for pre-Greek writing script (laughs) used by those of Mycenaean descent on the Greek mainland. He thought that there was a more ancient connection to this. And And he's looking for pre-Greek. Okay, that's sweet. So he was on to something. And he got super, super lucky when he came across stones that he ended up calling the seal stones that he believed had a language on them that dated to class predated classical Greece. So just uh, just to clarify, not seals as in the creatures from the sea. No. Seals as in seals that you would put on an envelope to mark that exactly. you had written Exactly, it. yeah. Seal it up. So 
the seal stones had been collected by tourists and local merchants to peddle as trinkets for years, and no one had really paid any attention to the images carved on them, which is kind of interesting. But Evans did, and he went to the island of Crete to a place known as Conossos, and it was basically littered with evidence of this ancient civilization. There were Roman coins and more modern ones from trade and things like that, but also walls disappearing into the ancient hillsides, and he knew there was something else there. Mm-hmm. It's right for excavation. He the, the turning point for him was that Evans was looking around, and he found engravings on a rock of Labrus. Okay, so... It was a labrys is essentially a double-headed axe symbol okay. that is really well known in Greek mythology oh. and his, has historical significance because it's directly related to that of Zeus. Zeus. I was thinking Thor. I was like, no, wait, that's a hammer. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's seen in many depictions of the Greek gods, including Zeus. And so it was here at the base of the mountain, the base of Knossos, this mountain, Knossos, that he made the connection to that of Zeus with this axe and through that axe linking to King Minos. Because he thought, if there's representations here of, of Zeus, Zeus yeah. and evidence of trade with finding these seal stones and things like that, clearly this could be the location of King Minos's palace of yeah. Knossos, right? One of the earliest cradles of Western civilization. Right. And, and possibly the location of the Minotaur's labyrinth. That's right. This is also exciting. I That's actually really cool, the idea that I don't know how much more he would have found besides this labyrinth that connected Zeus to like I feel like he's making a few leaps there right? oh yeah big time he was making leaps and actually like as the excavation was going on there was me- multiple points where he thought maybe there's nothing here like mm. maybe I spent so he all had my some money. doubts but there was so much evidence to suggest that there was something just underneath the surface that's right mm-hmm. so essentially he teams up Evans didn't really have much experience, right? He didn't have any field experience in archaeology. So he teams up with a Scottish archaeologist who I actually, I didn't actually write the name down of this, but that'll be in the notes. He ends up discovering Linear B, or at least so he thinks, but he's unable to translate it at the time. And Linear B was sort of this pre, like we've mentioned here, this pre, pre-Greek. Seemingly pre-Greek. Seemingly pre-Greek It was very language. crude. It seemed as if it was, yeah, an earlier version of right. it. And there was Linear B, there's also Linear A, which yes. was even more primitive. Right. I can't remember which was more primitive, one of the two. What this did, though, is it connected the cultures found at Knossos and the Mycenaean finds on the main of mainland Greece. Totally. So that's an important connection here. And if they're more primitive, then ergo, it seems to be that they would be older. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So Evans believed, his at the time, he believed his finds to be around 900 years older than the mainland Mycenaean Ooh. language timeline. So that was that's his almost speculation. Almost a thousand years. Right? It's a long that's time. cool. So... They continued to dig, Evans and his team, and at this point, it was a massive team of, of Greeks. Uh, I think it was over 80 people or something along those lines. It was yeah, pretty big. Wasn't it that he actually telegraphed his father to tell him of his success, and his father actually more than doubled the team? There was about 30 workers, and he doubled it to 100. Yeah, he wired them, like, at the time, like, 5,000 pounds or whatever Which it was. was like Which was, like, the equivalent of, like, 500,000 pounds. Maybe not quite that, but a lot of money, right? Yeah. And, like, yeah, so it was... Yeah, that kind of ticked off Evans too, though, because he was like, hey, dad, thanks for the money. But at the same time, like, don't tell anybody that you sent me this money because this is my find and I don't want you to be involved. No, exactly. No name involved. No nothing. This is his glory. That's right. So that's very Minosy of him. Ironic, isn't it? Yeah. He's like, I don't want to share. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, so they continued to dig and eventually found, like we said before, a throne. And Evans believed this to be the throne of King Minos. It's 
pretty unassuming. It's not super yeah. duper fancy. There was some inscription that did suggest that it was like a ruler of sorts or something. Right. That would have been like a chief or whatever. Maybe I mean, a priestess, what, though. what was the most significant about this is this is the earliest throne room in all of Europe. Yeah. To have been discovered. Very cool. Would, and it was um, discovered at the series of an, of an end of like rooms and passages that almost seemed very maze-like. It was about, it was in the west end of the um, excavation. Right. And they uncovered, it was like this really, really exciting day for them when they started to uncover a passageway that led into another passageway and there's a whole series of rooms and chambers that seem to be very much that of like a royal chambers kind of a thing oh absolutely and mm. not just that but like yeah and of the of the labyrinth of the classic totally. labyrinth right so like, like we're uncovering it yeah like they, they would get into one room and then through that one room discover longer passages that were connected to other passages and yeah he was thinking this is very reminiscent of the minotaur's labyrinth so he's getting excited and then on the 56th day of the excavation, the workers found a fresco that made them basically run away in fear. And these are the local Crete, Crete, Cretan, I suppose you would call them, excavation or, yeah, workers, locals, right? Yeah, locals, okay. They basically found something that they now, at this point in time, saw as something demonic. And it's this enraged bull, the fresco right. of the King Minus's bull. With its nostrils flared and its tongue hanging out. Right, so this is, this is the Cretan bull that would have... That would have terrorized the countryside exactly. when it was released by that king. Totally. Right? It, it was basically the face of the devil they were looking at is That's kind of right. how they thought of it. Yeah. They also found frescoes with king, just King Minos, what, what they believe to be potentially a King Minos-like character. No, no definitive explanations. Mm-hmm. They found frescoes with bulls, uh, ones with their heads turned around in a very strange way, and also frescoes of the bull jumping, bull dancing. Oh, cool. That's neat. Um... Another point I just wanted to make before we get too far away from it was with the throne itself. When you look at images of the throne, it looks very much like a chair you'd sit in to connect with the gods. Like it has like those wavy sides to it on the back. And then it also has a very deep set imprintation of buttocks, right? So you get that inlaid into the chair. Mm -hmm. And at first Evans interpreted that as the seat for a woman because of the... um, the, 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 yeah, the grand nature of the buttocks. <laughs> but then he actually turned it around and to sort of support his hypothesis that this was King Minos's throne. So he kind of changed his hypothesis sort of, or sorry, he changed the interpretation of the evidence to sort of fit his hypothesis, which he was kind of guilty of doing um, a lot during these excavations. And in the post-Evans era, as we'll get into, there was a lot of reinterpretation happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. They, they found some pretty crazy stuff, though, as they were digging. Like, they were discovering more and more how advanced the civilization really was. They even found the evidence of the first flushing toilet uh, that That's the Minoans really, actually invented. That's really, interesting. I want to know what that looks like. I know, right? Like, h- how exactly did it flush? But that's... I'm, I'm assuming they just had a... It's like what happens when the water's turned off, right? So you, yeah. Like, in our modern civilization, where you can have a bucket, you just pour it into the actual... The back of the chair or, or into the actual bowl, and then it just flushes itself using... Uh, yeah, something along those lines, right? Using gravity or I mean, whatever. obviously, you can build massive palaces. Flushing toilets shouldn't be that far off, but... That's so cool. They also did find three other sites of grand architecture, though, all over the island, Crete. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's cool. Um, before we get into all those other ones, though... Um, or actually, I don't even think we have that many notes on those exactly, but I just want to make a quick mention here that... Okay, so Evans is kind of... He's in that... 
uh, era of archaeology where a lot of stuff that would nowadays be very carefully sifted through, organized, um, cataloged, and just more, less um, haphazardly sort of yeah, excavated. definitely. Okay, so he actually excavated the main palace in only five years. This is a site that's about uh, six miles squared. Wow. So I don't know how that would have... Like, I feel like there would have been a lot lost in the process, right. like a lot of the more finer nuances. And then as well, even worse, he used concrete to restore some aspects of the palace, which is a huge no-no and highly condemned by archaeologists Yeesh. today. Yeah. And again, right, could kind of blur the lines between what you're actually finding and the way that you're constructing it to support your own hypotheses. And that's exactly, and, and very much like Schleiman, he was doing that. He, he, he knew what he was looking for, so he was piecing the puzzle together how he saw fit mm-hmm. um yeah and i mean yeah like schleeman did exactly the same thing he just thought that he had found helen helen of troy's jewels and really it was something different but yeah there were three other grand architecture sites that were discovered on the island of crete though that some have deemed to be the place of knossos or at least palaces like knossos but not even that so much but it's like they were called palaces because of the extent of Evans' um, influence in this particular right. era of um, or area of scholarship. Yeah, but in all honesty, they were probably other uh, sort of site, like temples. Yeah, sites like of that. worship, mm-hmm. not exactly for housing a king, anything like that. Mm. Yeah. So most archaeo- most archaeologists now do not believe that Knossos is actually a palace, but rather a place for priests and the people, the people themselves, to go and worship a holy place. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I think that makes sense. I think that the throne room lends to that idea. But Evans had fitted these facts to make the Minos legend and the legend of the beast fit. I still think that the legend of the beast is almost more based in truth than Minos, potentially. I think so, too. Yeah. There could have definitely been some sort of, like, some pit that you were dropped into that was labyrinth-like, that you would basically be devoured or, or charged by monsters, monstrous bulls or something, yeah. like, you know? Interestingly, though, I mean, as much as the detail he's finding, there's a lack of insignia, you know, or, or sort of ownership present at these sites that would really give a solid indication of who, right? So again, with no, no indication that it's minus... Very, exactly. exactly. There's an absence, a very notable absence. Yeah, of a supreme leader, of an emperor, of a pharaoh like, you know, Mm -hmm. like in other cultures where we know it was Ramses II, Ramses III. We know it was, uh, yeah, whoever, right? But, yeah. The site becomes uh, even more interesting, though, when we consider it in the light as opposed to traditional kings and princesses and the imaginings of this. I mean, I picture it as being like, I don't even know. It's a weird structure. It's a weird structure. It's, I really want to go visit it. It's this awkward in between a holy place and a potential palace where it's like, I can't put myself in. I, I wish I could have been a fly on the wall, man. Like, I just wish I could have seen a, a ritual or a ceremony to get an idea of like what this place is. I know. Cause it is, it could be considered a monastery of sorts. It could be considered, um, a, a multi multifaceted use space, right. Where you're storing crops, you're performing rituals. You may have people like a uh, cult of priestesses that live there permanently. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There's a lot of different things. Uh, yeah. But the main idea is that this, these places were reserved for grand celebrations of like the island's fertility, the fruits of the gods and the, the labors of all the people. Mm-hmm. 
Um, like we mentioned, there's other sites, right? There's one that actually contains no riches, no gold or jewels or anything or, or fine pottery. I don't think they really found many jewels or whatever but no. <laughs> at Kenosis, but you know, things like that, the finer points of life. But it was just a more commonplace village at a, it's called Gornell. And they found like so much like things that suggested that this was where the workers lived and yeah. breathed and yeah. fish hooks, uh, potter's wheels, architect or sorry, agricultural tools and other like working, like working class accessories mm-hmm. were discovered. So this was kind of the hive of productivity. Right. And it's Building very neat. It's stuff. built on a hillside too. It's got an awesome view of the, uh, the ocean, the sea, I should say. And it would just be this, I could just imagine it being just bustling with activity. Everyone's got their purpose. Everyone's doing whatever. And they're all working together. Like Totally. I, I'm sorry. That's just a, <laughs> that's, your, that's kind of an idealized you're in version. You're vision of Minoan culture. Exactly. It's not so cool. But obviously the fall of the Minoans and uh, stuff that happened subsequently after their sort of uh, golden era was not the prettiest. No, I mean, Evan saw the last days of the Crete Minoans around 1450 B.C., you know, surrounded by civil war and essentially while the rest of Creed burned, Canalsus managed to survive. Mm-hmm. But... So they, they do think that it was sort of a conflict between the mainland Mycenaeans and kind of overrunning the Greek, yes. or, sorry, the Crete island. Yes. And it would have been quite fast. I, I A lot of people theorize it would have been devastating. There would have been multiple elements of collapse coming for the Minoans, including like earthquakes, tsunamis, things from the sea, as well as invaders, right? Yeah. And there was this one really interesting example from that history documentary that we keep referencing, and it details the collapse of a temple. Okay. And so essentially, one lone temple was unearthed and excavated. I believe this was in the later half of the 20th century. And essentially, the body of a boy was discovered, and he was actually positioned on like almost like a sacrificial table. It looked like, like a stone, like a stone slab like an thing. altar kind of a thing. Exactly. His throat was slit and the knife was actually found close by. Wow. It was an apparent sacrifice. There was another body found nearby in the temple itself, so laying a few feet away from the boy. And then there was another body found outside actually with this large bowl that had a dark substance in it that was presumed to have contained the fresh blood of the boy as a Ooh. sacrifice to the gods. And it appears that the sacrifice had literally just occurred when the building collapsed in on them in a series of devastating earthquakes that would rock the island for the next, like, few hundred years. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's like this devastation, it's quite swift. And the combination of all these elements, including, oh, this is something I had it written down later, I'll just mention it now, olive oil. Olives yeah. was a very prominent industry for Crete, Minoan Crete. Definitely. And olive oil is also highly flammable. So that's why you get all these fires happening too. Ooh, that kind of makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So that's why you get like references to like, yeah, as the rest of Crete burned, Kenosis stood tall. And it's like, mm, okay, but that's right. because it was made of stone. Right. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense, guys. Yeah. That's a, that's a good idea. Yeah. Build it out of stone. Yeah. Interesting. We have already touched on the tablets that Evans had found with the linear A and linear B language sequences. And this kind of became more interesting later on after his death because they never were translated during Evans's life. No, he's never successful. They that. they were translated after the fact. Um, was it just was it Doctor Ventress? Or I believe it a, was. Yeah, Doctor Ventress. Okay, so it was a Greek historian and archaeologist, or I guess it would have been a linguist as well, um, who basically translated these and, and ended up being associated with the Mycenaeans mm-hmm. rather than the Minoans, as in that these tablets were 
the language itself was of pre-Greek Minoan origin, but the tablets themselves were from Mycenaeans who had come at a later date, taken over Crete, and then began to use their linear languages um, because they didn't have necessarily maybe the same or whatever, for whatever reason that, that it became associated with the Mycenaeans rather than the Minoans. It, yeah, exactly. It was just a kind of a strange form of mainland Greek. <laughs> right. And so it kind of really changed the picture of these last days of the Minoans. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people think that this actually changes the picture and that the Mycenaeans had actually gone on a full scale invasion of the island in sort of a violent coup. Mm-hmm. Hardcore. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of, a, it's really unfortunate for these people. They only had a few hundred years where they were living the golden life, you know what I mean? Yeah. And they had these grand uh, palaces that they ultimately left behind. And the question I, is, we get the, oh yeah, what's your question? I just like, well, sorry, no, you finished your thoughts. Oh, first. I was just going to say, like, obviously we did mention the Minoans in our Sea People's episode. So right. I just wanted to throw that back in as a, a factor of <laughs> that could yeah. have potentially brought about the end of the Minoans. Maybe all of these things happening, earthquakes, fire, tsunamis, incursions all together are just bring about the end of one of the most interesting and mysterious, like, pre-Greek cultures of any the world. Any civilization. Yeah, one of the most mysterious in human history, really. Yeah. The real mystery, though, here that we're still grappling with is... Was the labyrinth real? Mm-hmm. Was there a real monster in it or a bull in it? This Ural bulls, which essentially mm-hmm. are real monsters. Yeah. And where is it? Yeah, totally. So there's a continued search for this labyrinth. And some people, like we said, will argue that Kenosis is essentially the labyrinth. Um, there was another site that was excavated. It was like an underground site that was actually, um, <clears throat> it was discovered that the walls were naturally formed. So it wasn't oh, okay. a man-made construction, but <laughs> there's <laughs> another one. It's called the site of Gotiern and uh, Gortin, Gortin, sorry, not Gotiern. Gortin is a little village on the island of Crete. Okay. And there is this enormous underground um, tunnel system nearby on the south end of the island that is constructed by man, so not naturally formed. And it's kind of been suggested to be the site of the the labyrinth. And if you... Okay, well, I was watching another documentary just this morning before we started recording, and they actually have a graphic that shows you the layout of the tunnels inside the mountain. And I'm not sure if they were precise with that graphic, because if they were, that to me is like the labyrinth, because you it's almost a complete replica of the coins that you find later in Roman and Greek right, culture, where yeah. they have these labyrinths um, actually imprinted onto it. Totally. And anyways, yeah, so a lot of uh, people have been quite interested in this. It's been visited extensively since the time of the Romans. Like, there's people that do pilgrimages to it. They leave their name. They scrawl it on the walls, um, all this kind of stuff. I want to do that. (laughs) Yeah. And there's recently a team of British and Greek researchers that were investigating this site. And so it's now an abandoned rock quarry. And it was actually used by the Nazis during wartime, too. Interesting. There you go. They use everything. There's always a Nazi tie to everything. (laughs) (laughs) But the site is called the Cave of Nazara, and it lies a mere... 20 miles away from Kenosis. It's not that far. So it's an attractive area to, like, you know, an attractive distance to store a deadly beast. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like you don't want to have it, like, right beside your bed. No, that, <laughs> like I said earlier, it just doesn't seem logical to have it right next door. Exactly. So there's, like, so many winding passageways. A lot of them 
lead to nothing. It's just like a maze. And Dead ends, interesting. It's, yeah, some of them are like two miles long kind of thing. And a lot of people, when they go into this, uh, these, this tunnel system, they'll bring a rope to keep the way because a lot of people get lost just like theseus exactly and you know i'm kind of going back to this idea that like didalis like when he constructed it he made it so that it was so confounding that if you take a few steps in you're almost instantly lost right and so that to me speaks to uh extreme darkness too right because darkness is very disorientating and you can even take two steps around in a circle and then you don't even know where you're at pretty much or a lot of people wouldn't be i, I would be one of those people i wouldn't know where they're at <laughs> <laughs> we get lost in the parking lot every time we go to the grocery store though so <laughs> you yeah. and i are like we're the worst to put down in and those labyrinth. are just aisles that go up and down yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, like I mentioned, these walls seem to have been carved by ancient tools. So there's markings there. And and as these researchers were kind of uncovering more and more, they found that it's been visited by thieves recently. And they were actually preparing to dynamite one of the inner chambers, hoping to discover a treasure room on the other side. One of the main uh, things to sort of get to is this one room. It's like this chamber that's supposed to be in the center where supposedly the beast laid like you know like yeah, his, 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 his layer yeah so to speak sleeping area and so if you get to there and you carve your initial on it then it's kind of this big deal kind of thing and then you leave and very remember. cool but obviously there's no um evidence to suggest that there is a beast there um no evidence to suggest that there was one once there there's no like bones found or anything that i can that i've dug up myself well of course i mean this is thousands of years <laughs> later in <laughs> internet yeah <laughs> there could have been though i mean plausibly yeah, but I thought this was so cool. And I think so underground. too. Underground, that's yeah, really neat. Definitely. So, so we're kind of coming here down to the, down to the end here. Yeah. So I've got a few questions for you. Sure. I'm curious. I mean, perfect timing, having just given this uh, this example here on another location in Crete. Do you believe the labyrinth to have existed, literally existed, as it was described in the stories? I want to believe it existed. I'm kind of on the fence because obviously we don't have the any sort of like i think i do think it did because i think you're right it would have been so effective as a tool used for fear like mm-hmm. right, creating fear creating respect um even if it did come about a thousand years later just in the greek retellings of these histories and stuff and, and mythologies created it's still it's just an effective it's almost reminds me of the panopticon yeah where the idea that you're being like watched, always being watched exactly can't, can't escape it exactly so that creates a just a psychological thing i think that's what this labyrinth functioned as it was a right. psychological tool used to sort of in so many different levels right so like what we've talked about already the analogies of like man and beast and these tensions of the civilized and the savage and and these uncontrollable natures of man and everything all of it kind of just what are your thoughts though do you think it really existed i think it i i definitely think that it really existed as a physical place and that that there was probably a a, an oral bull down there like an actual beast that they would uh, that they would throw people into i don't know if it was as elaborate or extensive um distance-wise or size-wise as Diodalus would have claimed to have built or people claimed he built. Mm -hmm. But I think about all the crazy stuff that goes on in ancient, in the ancient world in terms of ritual sacrifice. We have that here associated with the bull. Mm -hmm. So 
this would be literally sacrificing to the bull. I don't think it's that far off. I mean, cra- I mean, we're looking back at like the Aztecs and they would like fillet people alive. Like we you say you know, fillet. Literally, they would fillet them. Fillet, like a chick fillet. Yes. <laughs> not, yeah. not flaying. Oh, sorry, did I say fillet? You said fillet. <laughs> like it's a chick fillet sandwich. Hey, maybe they may- turned them into a chick. Andrew's got fillets on the brain. I'm getting hungry here, folks. I'm getting hungry. But my point is that, obviously, crazier things have happened in the ancient world, right, in terms of, like, ways to kill people. Mm -hmm. Building an elaborate labyrinth and putting something in it doesn't seem that far off to me. No, it actually doesn't. And you do get a lot of precedents. Like, we do have other examples of labyrinths in the ancient world. And then you get the resurgence of labyrinth-like mazes in the form of hedge mazes in the medieval era. So you get this other sort of... Exactly. So there's a lot of precedence that does sort of support the um, idea that this did exist at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a quote here just to end off the the discussion, but I don't even know if... I'll just read it out here. This was from that Anglo-Greek research team that is excavating the underground site. Very cool. This was a Dr. Shopland, and they just made some remarks um, just on the idea of where this labyrinth could be and w- what area has a better claim to it or not. So she says here... Or he, I don't know. Um, But I think Kenosis really has a better claim to the labyrinth Mm -hmm. because it is based on the classical tradition rather than the later tradition of travelers. So people pilgrimaging to this underground site, Um, Dr. Chaplin said. Kenosis is mentioned in Homer. If the labyrinth is a real thing, it was the way in which a site such as Kenosis was transmitted into later Greek myth. Hmm. So again, they're kind of playing on this whole, like, yeah, the interplay of Greek mythos, myth-making, and then um, the transmutations of history and what can kind of get bogged up in this game of telephone that they're playing for a thousand years. (laughs) Absolutely. So, I don't know. I thought that was an interesting sort of way to end it off. I guess if I could finish with one last question. Mm -hmm. I mean, we definitely are not going to argue that there's a possibility that a half-man, half-bull creature exists (laughs) beyond the realm of magic and things Mm -hmm. like that, right? But do you think it's possible that maybe there could have been, this is going to sound out of left field, but not necessarily like a cryptozoological phenomena, but a creature that was bull-like, but not necessarily an actual Ural bull Hmm. that had maybe... I'm thinking back to like the movie we just covered, uh, Quiet Place, and the the monsters in that with their elongated legs and features and things. Mm -hmm. Maybe there was some sort of a creature bull-esque that had... I'm almost reminded of, of like birth defect? almost or something where it was just like a, a slightly different species, longer legs, more human like. I'm doing massive air quotes here. What if you like vivisected a calf in order to stand up like a man and then as it developed, it would look like a half man, half bull? Oh, I'm sure there we was a few done... Moreau characters we... in the... I don't know. Maybe it's too morbid covering vivisection on the show. I don't know. Maybe yeah. we come up with some stories for that. But... Well, maybe when someone does a better uh, version of the movie than oh, the Val yeah. Kilmer one, we can cover it on Film Friday. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was a bad movie. It was but, terrible. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, just right. wanted to th- throw that out there as a fun little idea. Well, let's throw this one out to the audience. Do you guys think that the Minotaur was real? Yeah, <laughs> Do well, you think the Labyrinth was real? Yeah. Do you think King Minos could have been real? All of these things, right? Definitely. So get yeah, at us totally. into the portal mailbox at gmail.com as well. Uh, we're always active on our socials, right? So we've got into the portal one on Twitter, mm-hmm. uh, our forum, which is super fun. Uh, we've had a lot of new members joining in. So tons of new people. 
Yeah. Sweet. So it's at Into the Portal uh, podcast on Facebook, and you just click the group, and you're in there, and you, all you have to do is tell us what your favorite episode and paranormal topic is. So we'd love to have you. Exactly. So yeah, thank you guys so much for listening to uh, this mythological episode of ours that we've really enjoyed. We hope you did as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, we will be back on Friday. On Friday with another film Friday, and we are going to be covering the Reanimator. Nice. So look out, look out for that one. And uh, as well, we do have our Patreon episodes of the month coming down the tube this week. Yeah. So all of our lovely patrons, uh, look forward to those. And thanks so much to our producer, Charlene Ramler, as well as, as all always. of our Patreon supporters. Definitely. We love you guys. You are the best. You guys are going to be excited about these new uh, episodes. Oh, They're sweet. Yeah, we've got some really cool ones coming. So anyways, until... Friday. Until Friday.